0: If you enjoy the stories on this podcast, you'll also like the stories in my book, Filmmaking Confidential, which isn't just for filmmakers, but also all artists and really any entrepreneur. Now on amazon.com and audible.com bestseller. I just want to say thank you to all of you who ordered it. If you haven't yet picked it up, it's available wherever books are sold in most countries around the world. Order it by visiting Audible or Amazon. To find out more, check out filmmakingconfidential.com and stevebalderson.com, and thank you. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential podcast. Every week, we meet with filmmakers, writers, actors, artists, and other notables. Today's guest is Her Royal Highness, the Princess of Hollywood, Pleasant Gaiman. Pleasant is a true Renaissance woman, best-selling author and journalist, international dance performer and instructor, punk rock historian, blogger, tarot card reader, and a critically acclaimed actor, musician, and painter. A Hollywood icon, her multidisciplinary creative output is nothing short of staggering. When we sat down to visit, Pleasant explained shoplifting her first bra at age 13.
1: All of my schoolmates, almost all of them, came from very conservative families. Meanwhile, like, I'd already been thrown out of fourth grade for having, like, a war moratorium armband on one arm and a strike armband on the other arm. (laughs) So... I wasn't wearing a bra, but then also I didn't, you know, Carrie hadn't been made yet the film, but I didn't know about like locker room shaming or anything. And I was the only one that didn't have a bra. So I went home and I was like, mom, I need a bra, you know? And I was like flat as a board. And she's like, you don't even have anything to put in. I was like, no, I need one. I didn't know how to tell her. Like, I can't be the only person without a bra. And she just looks at me as though I was like, you know, a 22 year old college student and said, bras are bondage clothing. And I went, Oh, and then the next day, I just went right to Woolworths and shoplifted myself a bra and bikini underpants, which I'd only had like waist-high, Carter's cotton, like little kids' underwear. And we only had one bathroom in the house, and <laughs> it was this big old Victorian house, and I locked myself in the bathroom because that was also the only room that had a lock on it. So I put on the bra. It was I still remember it. It was so beautiful. I mean, I'm sure right now as an adult, for many years, I would have thought it was like a cheap-ass piece of shit, but it was that hellish 70s stretch lace and it was mint green and it had two little triangle cups and it had three little roses here like a hot pink one a light pink one and a white one and so I took off all my clothes and put that on and I sit on top of that uh, toilet seat. And it was pretty much like the scene from Silence and the Lambs. Like if that movie would have already come out, I would have been going, do you want to fuck me? I want to fuck. Me. I mean, I was just like, wow, this is like the best thing ever. <laughs> okay, so I was um, 15 when we moved to Hollywood and we moved here because my mom, she got a job with one of her old boyfriends who was Mel Brooks. She was an actor and on Broadway and stuff. And I didn't realize until, you know, for a while, how weird, I thought like your parents always knew people that were on TV. I didn't know that I had a weird upbringing. So like, you know, we'd be watching some movie and she'd be like, oh, I used to date him. And it would be like Dr. Smith from Lost in Space. Or like when she told me she dated Joel Grey, you know, when Cabaret came out in 1972 and I was obsessed with it. I imagined her like dating the MC and I was like, wow, that doesn't seem like my mom's type. I would date him. But like, what? <laughs> anyway, I didn't realize he was just like, you know, a regular Jewish actor that happened to have that role. <laughs> so she got a job with Mel Brooks when he was working on the, she was doing research for Duchess and the Dirtwater Fox. This was 1975. And the family... The rest of the family had already come out there, but I was finishing up my semester at boarding school where I'd been sent to. And it wasn't a delinquent boarding school, but I was super delinquent. And that's why I went there. They were they were giving tasks because they wanted to attract sort of lower income people and give scholarships, I guess, for, for tax write offs or something. But so I was super intelligent, but also like, you know, having sex with my mom's theater student. So off I went so I finished out that semester and I went to visit her everyone else had already been to see her opposite 20th century fox and see a real live movie set and so I went to visit her right after I came and this was like in March 1975 and this lady came up to me and asked if I wanted to be in a movie and I said what movie instead of, you know, I wasn't all like Hollywood, you know, hopeful or anything. I I mean, I kind of knew what was going on. So I said, what movie? And she said, it's a Roger Corman movie. And I immediately, I'd seen like Little Shop of Wars and all of his like hellish, crazy, amazing movies since I was little from watching like black and white TV. And I loved him and I knew it was trash and I knew it was exploitation. I mean, I'm saying that in huge air quotes. But that, that had, you know, if there would have been hashtags in those days, that would have been a hashtag goal. And I was like, yeah, I want to be in a movie. And then she's like, how old are you? And I was like, 15. And then she's like, oh, well, I will need your, your mother's approval. And so I said, here, just come with me to her office. And I was like, mom, I want want to be in a movie. The lady that was doing this explained it. And she said, oh yeah, it's a scene with these young girls. And she didn't explain it fully. And I don't think my mom really knew who Roger Corman was, but she signed off on it. And so then a day or two after I turned 16 and I was in the movie for a scene called The Wet New Biles. <laughs> It was supposed to be some audition for the movie. And the whole premise of the movie was like, you know, the lead character had a talking vagina. <laughs> this was for the movie Hollywood Boulevard. I can't remember if I just said that. Anyhow, so we all were wearing white t-shirts and like our own bell bottoms. Like, they had a million t-shirts for us but we had to bring our own pants everyone looks so 70s and we were supposed to as we were getting sprayed across the boobs for this audition we had to jump up and down of course there's screenshots of it that a friend of mine took off the of TV recently and um, I put them on Instagram. This is, <laughs> this sounds so modern. I put them on Instagram and you could tell I was like so happy to be in that movie because there was a scene where I was supposed to be jumping and I was jumping way higher than anyone else. But when you look at it, I looked like a preteen until I was like 48 or something. So I looked like such child porn in this movie <laughs> Can I say, the 70s were a different time. Do you remember,
2: were you directed by Corman or did some AD direct you guys?
1: No, Roger Corman was there and there was ADs all over the place, but I didn't know all of that. So I didn't even know what an assistant director was at that time. You know what I mean? Right. But, um, I remember people saying Mr. Corman and stuff. So, And Mary Waranoff was in it, too. And we later became friends, you know, but a time like I met her a few years later in punk rock which I say like in the paleolithic period or in medieval times like in punk rock I met Mary Waranoff and I loved her not just because of all of her film roles but because of she used to go-go dance with the velvet underground in New York in the 60s and stuff. Oh, cool anyway, yeah anyway she was around all the time and we were we weren't, like, close friends, but, like, we, we would always see each other at parties and stuff, and, you know, she's just so iconic. There used to be this woman. Um, her name was Janet Cunningham. Rest in peace. She was in New Orleans transplant to, to Los Angeles, and this was in the late 70s and the early 80s, and she started off just having, like, a club that was an art gallery called Cash. They would have installations and uh, sometimes like, you know, wild parties. And Lawrence Fishburne was the doorman. Janet had done some casting stuff, but then she opened up her own casting agency, also called Cash. She specialized in real punks. Real bikers, real tattooed people, real like anyone on the fringe. So she'd call up productions and just say, I've got, you know, I've got these amazing looking punks and they'd they'd say, Oh no, you know, it's okay. We got them from central casting. And then she'd send some of us over and this was just her idea And she'd send us over there and the directors would have like 10 to like 100 people for like a club scene or whatever in a movie or a television show of punks. And they all look like clean cut headshot actors and would have like on a white T-shirt with one safety pin on it or something. And then we'd show up and the directors or would all just be like this. And then someone would get on the phone in the trailer, you know, because there was no cell phones in those days, like send home, like give all the central casting people a day pay rate for, for background. And then they'd say, you, 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 are you available for the next two weeks? And we'd be like, yeah. So I was in like every fucking possible rock and roll movie you can even think of from like, the late seventies to the mid to late eighties, and so were a lot of other people that are. Many of them are famous people in bands now, or become iconic rock and roll figures because that was how we lived in those days. You couldn't get a job if you even were wearing all black, let alone you had like weird dyed hair or anything. You know, like people just wouldn't hire you. Now it would be called discrimination. We were all wanted to work, but no one would take us. So we'd wind up working at fireworks stands or just after a while doing like movies all the time. And it got to the point where we were, I mean, we're talking like rock and roll high school, Valley girl. I did like another Roger Corman movie called Vendetta. My band played in it in the beginning when like the girl gets raped and assaulted. So that was, that was my first woman in prison movie before stuck. But, um, <laughs> But so like all of those movies, if you look hard in them, you can pick out people that uh, have turned into famous rock stars in background. If you, if you stop it and look very carefully, that was like a cottage industry that supported like so many musicians, you know, many of them that later came and turned into actors in LA. So the, I just thought that was really interesting to bring up about that, because that that's how we were all eating the, the movie thrashing movie that I co-wrote with Max Tash called The Running Kind. Of course we were gonna use our own friends. It was Janet's casting. And we also used like my house for that, for the running kind and for um and Juliet we,
2: Lewis was in that, right?
1: Yes, that was her that was her first film. Juliet Lewis was in that. And then that was also I co-wrote it with Max and this was how I met Max Max Tash who ha- He'd been um, a producer on WKRP in Cincinnati, and he wanted to write a movie about an all girl band. So he interviewed the Go Go's, the Bangles, and my band, the Screaming Sirens. And at that point, the Go Go's were really famous. The Bangles had just been signed, the Screaming Sirens had just been signed too which was my band. But I was talking to him and I said, I was the only person, I guess. And I said, you know what, I'll take you out. So you can see what the sign, what this scene is really like, come out to some of my gigs and then I'll take you to other shows. And so we started doing that and he saw what it was like in real life. Cause he didn't know anything about it. He, about the, you know, the LA rock and roll scene or underground rock and roll punk stuff. He just thought it was interesting And so then he started, you know, he'd call me up and ask me questions. And then he started realizing that I wrote for LA Weekly and that I, you know, wrote for a bunch of other rock and roll and culture magazines. And I was writing for The Hollywood Reporter and Variety both at the same time, which was I may have been the first person to do that. That was unheard of at the time. Anyway, then he came to me and he said, would you like to write this movie with me? And I I said, yeah. You know, because at first I would just say, like he'd just call me up and read a scene and say, oh, no, 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 this she would never say that. Or this person, you know, this would never happen. It would happen this way. Not about a personal situation, but just something that made it like logistical and real. That was how we started working together. And then we had fun. We, <laughs> This is also so, so 80s. We'd work on some of it for a while. Like we'd have a good, like, you know, few couple of hours of writing on it because he had an office in the tapped building. And then we'd go to this insane after hours underground speakeasy that I knew of that I'd been going to. And it was called the Zero Zero. It traveled around because the locations would always get busted. And I mean, this had bonafide movie stars and real rock stars going to it, along with like, you know, slummy, crazy rock and roll kids. And I was a bartender there, you know, which just meant like, You know, pulling the tabs on like the hellish cheap beer they bought, and like showing, showing your bra for like tips. And (laughs) I mean, that wasn't a hard job, but we'd make a lot of money. The drunker people got. So Max and I would be writing, and then I'd take him to wherever that place was that night to avoid getting busted and, and we'd always do like sorry Max I gotta say it then we would just do we'd drink a lot and do tons of blow and then go back to writing and then the next day we'd go and look and see if anything that we had written after the After Hours Club was salvageable
2: <laughs> Amazing
1: <laughs> So 80s but yes it was true to its time. anyhow I don't even know how it was all in indie film and then somehow it got picked up by MGM that was really amazing, but it was also really messed up because we used so many local bands that later went on to become really famous, like TSOL, the punk band TSOL, and Fishbone. Um, both bands are still going, and I've you know, had huge cult followings for years. And we filmed it at all the local LA places and on the streets of Hollywood and at my punk house, End. But MGM's marketing said a good place for it to open would be like in Houston and Austin, right? And we're like, why don't you open it in Hollywood? This film was made in Hollywood. Oh, no, the market, you know, it's not it's not good. And they were just going by total demographics. And we're like, we filmed this whole thing in Los Angeles in Hollywood. Why would you not do it? We had a big, it wasn't a fight, but we were. We kept pressing for it and it didn't happen, which I, which I still regret to this day, but that, that was MGM's fault. And then they put it out only on VHS, but if anyone wants to watch it, it's on YouTube in its entirety. And so far it's still free. It's called The Running Kind with an apostrophe. Um, you know, it's no, no G on running and it's on there.
2: Cool. Trying to tell your story in an hour is impossible. As we know, <laughs> <laughs> you've had 1,111 lives yeah, already. Definitely. There's the world of punk rock. There's the world of film. There's you as a journalist. There's you as a writer, as a dancer. Um, uh-huh. Terror, writer,
1: fortune teller, witch, like punk right. story. And, uh,
2: yeah. So there's also the element of you performing dance
1: been in a ton of those movies i've been in a lot of dance documentaries even made by by like national geographic um i i choreographed all the the sword sequences and taught the actress in charlie wilson's war how to use a sword and how to belly dance and i also did costume consulting because that took place in the 70s i've been on national geographic specials about belly dancing i've been in um I've been in all sorts of commercials and other movies like as groupies or cult members or murderers or hookers, all that, you know, <laughs> type casting. I can't even tell you how many times this is going to sound so dumb and au courant, but people will send me like fucking like little pieces of films um, on Instagram or something and going, look, I was watching TV and you popped up on this movie or like... <laughs>
2: It's true. I mean, I've had that experience where, I mean, I was watching whatever documentary it was, uh-huh. and there you are. You, Courtney Love, and the third person.
1: Oh, yeah, the Sunset Strip. That was the Sunset Strip.
2: And that was literally just a one of those days, and there you were, and I'm like, what the hell is Pleasant doing this? So then I watched it, because you were there. Um, Yeah, I've
1: been in so many documentaries for all different facets of my life too like what you said too It's weird, it's strange I mean, it's not strange but I was in a lot of historical-ish type situations a lot
2: Yeah, that's true Um, Were you the last
1: happens when you're 61 No
2: Um, Do I have it right that you were the last journalist to interview Kurt Cobain?
0: Yes Pleasant Gaiman Another great guest is Academy Award nominee and Golden Globe winner, Sally Kirkland.
1: And My girlfriend had told me, Sally, you're going to have to fuck him. You're going to have to. This is the lead role in The Godfather. And I said, but I've been celibate for however many months I can. I'm celibate. And she said, Sally, this is Francis Ford Coppola. You're going to have to fuck him.
0: You can hear my full interview with Sally at filmmakingconfidential.com or by subscribing for free to this podcast. When we come back, Pleasant continues with Kurt Cobain's final interview. Stay with us. Now, back to our conversation with Pleasant Gaiman.
1: Yeah, I was the last journalist to interview him, and also I was the first person to give Courtney Love and her band Hole a show. So when they were going through all that, um, remember when Child, Care, Child Protective Services was after them because of drug use and stuff, they were going to do a magazine rebutting that vanity therapy piece in Spin Magazine. There was going to be a piece. And then Courtney and Kirk both said, we won't do it unless Pleasant writes that Because I'd already been writing for Spin, but also I, I'd known both of them for a pretty long time. And they knew that I was like a credible writer. So I did that. And then I also one time brought Kurt Cobain to a a Mexican tranny bar and he was wearing pajamas and no one knew it was him because it was a Mexican drag bar. You know, (laughs) I made him get these books that I had. One was called The Sexual Criminal and the other was called Death Scenes because I knew he was like I was telling him about it. And then he went to the soap plant and got him. And before we were doing the last interview, we were on the phone that night. I'm, I'm landlines, I'm pretty sure. But we were just going through the books page by page, making comments on all the weird murder scenes or mug shots and stuff. Cool. Yeah.
0: Here's a clip from my film, The Casserole Club, starring Pleasant Gaiman, opposite Susan Trailer and Kevin Richardson from the Backstreet Boys in his film acting debut.
1: When I was 13, I got molested on some railroad tracks by an albino. The moon made his skin glow so brightly. I just pretended I was having sex with a light bulb.
2: After Can, we hadn't really like, we'd hung out a few times, but like it was like the first sort of time where we were going to be working together where you're, you know, in the movie and I'm directing it. So what was your first day experience?
1: Okay, my first day experience was that I made the heinous mistake of watching Day of the Locust right before but because i loved karen black and i could not believe that i was gonna be in a movie with her and um i had no idea at that time until the night before that the very first thing we were shooting was me and her getting raped in a carnival trailer and so i was just like oh my god like i'm so fangirling over karen black and like why did I watch that? They have the locust again. And so it took like an hour and a half to put my fake boob on. I oh, let's
2: let's boob. stop right there and say because <laughs> with I'm sure the listeners are like, what? Did she just say fake boob? <laughs>
1: so yeah, I was just gonna say it. so in Firecracker, I played a a sideshow burlesque dancer in the carnival. I was trying to make my own costume but it wasn't working out. So I called a friend of mine who designed for Felina bras and Victoria's secret. And I was like, if I was going to make a bra that had three boobs, how would I do it? He's like, why do you want to do that? And so I told him all about what I was doing for firecracker. And he's like, don't make it just like, what's your bra size. And I'll make, I'll make you some prototypes and I'll have them messenger to you tomorrow, which is what he did. And he also ordered a mastectomy prosthetic for me because for special effects to do like a, you know, like a Terminator kind of like fake boob. That would have been almost as much, if not more than the bu- the whole budget of Firecracker. So he got me this great mastectomy prosthetic. And I don't know if you even knew this part of it, Steve, it got lost in Rhode Island during a hurricane. Like they couldn't oh, look no. at it and it was getting FedEx to me. And I was like, this has to get found. This has to get found. And I kept calling FedEx like obsessively. Anyway, it finally arrived, getting the boob on. Took a long time. It took a really long time the first day, even though we've been doing practice runs. And the first practice runs were in your dad's living room. And all these like crew camera guys would walk by and they'd be like, ah, oh, like horrified. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I'm just sitting there bare breasted as a third boob is getting glued to me. I was like, it's okay. I don't care. This, this happens like all the time. They eventually got used to it. So we got the boob prosthetic on and we we're shooting in September in Kansas and it was super humid. I was getting ready to leave the trailer before that scene even started. I opened up the screen door and I started coming down the steps and the boob just like jumped off my chest because all the glue and mortician's wax and latex and everything we used to get it put on there just melted from the humidity. And it just plopped into the, mud at George the Giant's feet (laughs) and he kind of, he picked it up and said, I believe this is yours. (laughs) And I was like, give it to me. And then we had to rinse the mud off of it and stuff. Anyway, so my first scene with Karen Black, you know, I was so apprehensive because of like all the movies that she'd been in, especially Day of the Locust, which is always one of my favorites. She and I were going to get raped in a carnival trailer. My boyfriend had driven across the country just to like hang out for a few days but he wound up getting tagged as a carny and they were trying to like mess up everyone else so they look like little carnies and they just looked at him and said oh you're fine how you are you know what i mean he was going to be the person that held held the other one down while you know one was getting raped right so this guy strolls in, and the first thing he says is um hi i'm sean and i'll be a rapist today like that <laughs> So Sean and I were like fighting, but you had the camera really close and you kept saying, cut, cut. And he's like, why cut? And I was like, because it looks fake. And you're like, it's got to really be. And I was like, you have to really grab me. You have to really manhandle me. I was still like this, like I could almost not even look Karen Black in the eye, but I knew we had to. I mean, just because I was so mortified and just couldn't believe it was I was acting with her. Anyhow, so the next one, we got really obstreperous in the fight. And I left a huge gash on his arm with my spike heel from like kicking and screaming. And then we did it again. And he got really aggressive, which is what I wanted to. I kept saying, you've got to be even more than that. So he got super aggressive and dirty. My boyfriend was holding Karen Black, like restraining her while I was getting raped by Sean, my rapist. Anyway, um. (laughs) So he was like, we were really tussling and rolling around and all of a sudden Dirty like tossed Karen Black aside like a rag doll and jumped on top of this guy and started pounding him. And you're like yelling, cut, cut, cut. And you're like, what are you doing? And then like Dirty had never even been on a film set before. He's like, I'm sorry. It just went into my head that he's hurting my girlfriend.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: Then we, did, then we did another take, and by that time, the boom just, like, it plopped off with the biggest fart ever. And you're just like, cut, cut! And then, like, you broke for lunch, because it was such a not productive morning. <laughs> Your film sets are really different for a bunch of reasons. One is there's absolutely no tension on them. Once in a blue moon, there might be a tense moment. But um, it's, it's not like the hysteria I've seen on other, on other film sets, whether they were major productions or like smaller indie films. I don't know why, but you have a really good and intrinsic way of picking out actors and picking out crews so that everyone is just chill and kick back and gets, absolutely just gets along with each other and wants to really like put in the extra time or the extra effort or the extra help or just support with each other to do stuff together in all manners of the production. There's never like any production assistants running around with megaphones screaming and looking like they're going to have an aneurysm. And this has been consistent with all the films I've done with you. And I don't, I don't even know what it is. You have some kind of magic that way. And also for anyone that's listening, I'm not just saying it because it's Steve. This is absolutely true. If you're ever on one of his sets as an actor or an observer, you'll see this in action.
2: Well, I put it. There's a chapter in my book called You Don't Need to Yell, you know, which is like so many people do. But do you have like a horror story that you witnessed on somebody's film set that was just unbelievable?
1: There was a film that I did called Back to the Beach. This was in the 80s. I was in the in the bad beach gang, you know, of course. You know, and there was a lot of like real surfers and skateboarders in it. There was, there was a lot of those kind of movies coming out then. The production assistants on Back to the Beach were just, they were terrifying. It was the most disorganized set I've ever been on. There was like meltdowns regularly. People were getting fired every day. Um, they couldn't control like that hugely substantial amount of background people they had on it i mean it would have been a difficult group to control anyway because it was real punks and a lot of real surfers and skateboarders who are just naturally feral but they couldn't control it they could have just controlled it easily by like telling us to show up like at different times or by making sure that there was like food and pizza Or, you know, tell us if you're going to surf and, and you know, but be ready in an hour or something. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I felt bad for them. It was sad to see the infighting that was going on with the people that were supposed to be in charge in front of the entire cast and crew. That's crazy ok, I'll never work in this town again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was just it was like absurd. And I'd been on enough sets then to to know when someone had fully lost control. He knew kind of about the workings of, you know, how movie sets should go. I just knew that this one was worse than anyone I'd ever seen. And then as I continued doing different films, it, it just really started sticking out as like, just like the worst experience. <laughs> It'd be like if you were a cowboy riding a bucking bronco and you didn't know what to do with a wild horse. I mean, that was kind of what it was like, you know, like you were not meant to do this job. You don't know what you're doing. Maybe you had a good directorial vision, but you did not have the authority and the calm and the um, the staff or crew to be able to facilitate that it ran in the smoothest way. And I felt really bad for them like that, even though I was a, a youngster in my early twenties, it was just an eye roll for me because I had seen how sets could have functioned way better. Right?
2: Were you ever an actor? Now I know you perform on stage, obviously when you're dancing. Stage but- acting,
1: yes. I had done, I had done stage acting also since I was like seven in my first stage acting and, I saw so many, because my, my mom taught theater, I sat in on all the rehearsals of music and dance and would hang out in the costume room. So I totally knew about projection for stage and how, how stage acting and film acting were two different things. I remember very early on as a child, I asked why people looked like they were making such crazy faces in silent movies, because there was always silent movies on on regular television when there was only like three channels, you know, they would play silent films too. My mom explained that they hadn't yet figured out to not use stage acting techniques for close-up film shots, you know, and that's why it looked so cartoonish. And like every gesture had to be big, but when you were seeing it on a small screen or a giant movie screen, it was going to look really different and weird and crazy, you know?
2: Yeah. Is there a project you've wanted to put as a movie more so than a book?
1: Um, I don't think I've had a full idea of that as a script or a story. I see stuff cinematically all the time. Like when I'm writing my own books without saying like, Oh, I'd be in this scene. You know what I mean? But I, my memories are kind of cinematic, like memories and my dreams are like that too. I see like the whole thing unfolding. So I think I would, I would probably be good at, like, directing something, but I haven't tried it yet. When I'm working on shows, I direct. I mean, I've even gone on to, like, make them costumes so it looks like my vision.
2: My favorite story, which gave me the inspiration to write a feature film based on this period of your life, because there's, like, this pocket of time that... In my mind, it's like the punk rock version of Little Miss Sunshine. Right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's sort of just how I how I imagine it. Even that's maybe not how it was for you growing up, but that's just how I feel like it was. Tell me the story about when you convinced whoever it was that you were there officially to interview David Bowie, but. It was oh. all-
1: <laughs> I cut. I was. I, I, I cut school all the time. Um. But I was hanging out with the guys that later turned into the germs with with them. Um, they were still using their real names there, but it was Pat Smear who went on from, from the germs to be in Nirvana and the Foo Fighters and Darby Crash who died far too early and became a punk rock legend. But um, they went to a different school than I did, but they had intel that Bowie was recording at Cherokee studios on Fairfax. And so we would all be taking the bus there to hang out in the parking lot. And there was limos going in and out because people like Frank Sinatra and Helen Reddy and like all famous people would be recording there. And it never, it never seemed like he was going in and out. So finally I was just like, fuck this. I'm going to get in to see David Bowie, you know? And they're like, how? And I was like, you just watch. And so we used to get the English newspapers like three weeks or a month later, cause they'd come over on boats, you know, but like, that was how we even found out about punk rock. You know, it was like a postage stamp sized picture of Johnny Rotten in one of them. I just picked um, which one could I say with the best English accent? Because so I was always a good mimic. And there was Sounds, Melody Maker, and New Musical Express, you know? So it was like, hi, I'm from MMA. Hi, I'm from Melody Maker, you know? And so I went to the pay phone that was near the parking lot because you had to get buzzed into Cherokee Studios. And I called up and I was like, hello, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm from enemy. I've got, I've got an interview with Bowie tomorrow with the session. I just wanted to make sure it's still at three o'clock. And she's like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll buzz you in. And I was like, okay. You know, and then I went home and I was like, God, what is an English music journalist? And I, I looked like a fetus. I mean, I, (laughs) I was, I looked like a baby. So I decided like, you know, a tank top with no bra and like this little tie dyed bed jacket, and these huge silver glitter platforms. And then at the last moment I grabbed this steno pad, you know, like just because I thought it would make me look official. I didn't have a tape recorder or anything, but so I got buzzed into the studio and she's like, it's down the hall and to your left or whatever she said. And then I was going down the hall, like, just like, like, completely, like, my mind was exploding because I was about to meet Bowie. And so I knocked on the door, and um, this guy opened it a crack, and he's like, Oh, they're still recording right now. And I was like, Oh, um, I'm here for the interview. And he's like, Okay, come on in. I went in there, and I was waiting, and I was like, You know, my heart was beating out of my chest. Then finally, like, they're like, Okay. And, you know, everyone's coming out of there now. And so I was like, Really, just like beside myself. And then all of a sudden the, the studio door opened from where this, you know, the the sound doors opened. And you know, all of the Osmonds came out, the Osmond brothers wearing orange football shirts that said, you know, like Matt. they were all matching. And it said, like, Wayne, Meryl, Jay, Donnie. And I was just like, Ugh. like I, I was and I didn't know if like Bowie wasn't there or if I had walked into the wrong studio or if the receptionist played a trick on me. And they were all like, hi, like that. And then they all smiled in unison too, as though it was on cue. And I was just like, I felt like every acid trip I'd ever been on, I was trying desperately not to cry. And I ran out of the door. (laughs) I ran out of the door and I was like, smashing into like framed, like platinum records and stuff. And I ran out the back door of the studio and set off the fire alarm (laughs) accidentally. (laughs) It was so sick. That was like one of the sickest things that's ever happened to me in my life.
2: I love it. (laughs) (laughs) That's my opening scene in the movie that I will write (laughs) of your life story. (laughs)
1: Yeah,
0: Jesus. Her Royal Highness, the Princess of Hollywood, Pleasant Gaiman. Find out more by visiting PleasantGaiman.com or by following her on Instagram at princessofhollywood. You can see Firecracker by going to vimeo.com ondemand firecracker. The Casserole Club is available on Amazon Prime Video. Tune in next time for more Filmmaking Confidential. It is totally free to subscribe, and when you subscribe, you'll get upcoming new episodes automatically, and you'll have free access to all our past shows. The Filmmaking Confidential Podcast is a production of Takanga Audio and produced by myself and Ella Spencer. Our theme music is composed by Kevin Robles. For more of the Filmmaking Confidential Podcast, head over to filmmakingconfidential.com. To learn more of my filmmaking secrets, be sure to pick up a copy of the book Filmmaking Confidential. Available on Audible, paperback, and ebook, wherever books are sold. I'm Steve Balderson. Thanks for listening and spreading the word. Until next time, keep making, keep doing, keep going.